Hi, this is Jeff Keilinger, the former general manager of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and you're listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations, by Trinex, Trust in What's Next, by Mentor APM, Intelligent Asset Management Software Built for Water, by Woodard & Curran, High-Quality Consulting Engineering, Science, and Operations Services, by Intera, Innovation and Stewardship for a Sustainable Tomorrow, by Xylem, Let's Solve Water, by the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource, and by Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. This is Session 233. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. We have a fantastic show for you today. Anthony Curry of Reuters Breaking Views joins us to discuss green hydrogen and its water problem. You'll recall Anthony gave an amazing interview on the show three or four years ago discussing water-derived financial risk, and he doesn't disappoint this time around. So stay tuned. That's a great interview coming up for you with Anthony Curry of Reuters Breaking Views. We also have Reese Tisdale stopping by for a Bluefield on Tap, and that'll we'll get to that as soon as we thank our sponsors, as we always do at the top of each show. Our sponsors for the 2023 season of the Water Values Podcast include Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, and Black and & Veatch. And that is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. So thank you all. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would, please, if you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how much you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on? It, of course, would be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. And then while you're leaving that review, don't forget to hit the little subscribe button so you get the podcast delivered to your device right when it's released. It'd be greatly appreciated. Well, before we head on to the interview with Anthony, let's get our Bluefield on Tap segment going with Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap. How, how are you? Pretty good, Dave. I'm just back from uh, spring break, so I'm, I'm rested and ready to go. All right. And spring break was where? It was in Utah, so we went skiing. And for any skiers out there, I'm going to tell you, I've never seen so much snow in my life. <laughs> Well, that's good. It's, that, that pretends well for the West, although uh, if you listen to Pat Mulroy last month, um, it's it's just a temporary reprieve. Uh, yeah, I don't think we should reasons. stop. I don't I don't think we should stop worrying about uh, the problems in the West. Um, there's a lot happening. So, yeah. So uh, just back from spring break, what's on your mind? What's Bluefield got for us on uh, on this section segment? 
Well, actually, last time we talked about uh, public-private partnerships, so I'm going to stick to the sort of private end of the uh, water spectrum uh, in the U.S., and that is since we last talked, uh, I think, first week of March, it looks like uh, Nextera is pulling out of Pennsylvania. Nextera is a company, Nextera Energy. Uh, we've talked about them a fair amount because they were a new market entrant into the water sector, which quite honestly – we at Bluefield were pretty excited about new player diversified across, you know, electric power, uh, renewables, gas, so and a lot of capital behind them. And uh, it seems that uh, Pennsylvania has maybe broken their back. That's it. So give me give us a little more context because when you, when you say Pennsylvania, I immediately think Fair Value State. Uh, uh, a hotbed for private activity for private acquisitions of, uh, of systems. Yeah, I mean, so so stepping back, you know, Next Era they acquired uh, some of Quadvest assets in Texas. So they that was its first successful uh, bid uh, for water utility assets in the U.S. They had been hunting around for larger systems, whether it be. And also partly related to power, but JEA in Florida, Santee Cooper in South Carolina, they tried for York uh, in Pennsylvania, which were their larger systems. They finally won um, the won a bid for water assets in Talmanson, Pennsylvania. So the 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 question was, or the the real uh, notable. Uh, aspects of the deal was that they paid $115 million um, for about 7,500 wastewater connections in Talmanson. So they paid a lot for a connection. But I mean, as you know, Dave, I mean, sometimes you got to pay to pay to play. You got to get in, sort of, you know, secure a beachhead. And that's exactly what they did. Behind the scenes, there are other things that have been happening, which may be impacting their strategy. But within Talmanson, there was a lot of pushback. So at the beginning of March, they basically threw in the towel and said, you know what, let's just transfer this over to American Water. And it seems that the commission, uh, town council, if you will, has basically said, you know, we're okay with that. And it looks like that's going to go forward, that it's just going to transfer over to American Water for a split price. I think American bid... 95 or they you know where next era bid 115 million i think next era bid about 95 million for the system so they're going to split the difference wow well that's so i i assume next era is going to pick up the difference of uh uh from americans bid down to yeah it looks like yeah i think americans gonna if they're gonna split the difference and i think you know it's not that the water business is necessarily bad i think it's a tough business but I think putting things in context, you know, Next Era, they have a new CEO that came into uh, came into leadership position last year. So after five to ten years of their of his predecessor talking about the water industry and potential opportunity and a, a risk uh, as well, um, they they deployed a strategy to do so. At the same time, so new CEO. Inflation Reduction Act, there's so much money going into the energy sector, and that's really what NextEra is. They're a power utility in Florida with FPL, but they are also a renewable energy developer, one of the biggest in the world. Um, and so there's so much money going there. They're probably, I, in fact, I know that they're doubling down on their efforts in that space. And so I think that's probably impacting their thoughts on water as well. 
Yeah, my 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 guess would be that the ROI is going to be significantly better on the energy side, energy side of the ledger. Yeah, and I think it's tough. You know, I think it's tough for a new player to get into it. I mean, you know, the 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 rate payers in Talmans in Pennsylvania, for instance, you know, they're complaining that their rates are going to go up. Well, they do have NextEra was or is at a disadvantage as a new player with one system. They can't spread the cost of the system across all rate, all the rate payers like American water or aqua can. So they are at a disadvantage as a new market entrant. And if anything, that might be a barrier to entry for some players, either you're okay with that or you're not. But I think they're broader, you know, market or internal shifts that are impacting uh, next air strategy and water. Yeah. It, water's definitely a long play. What do you think the, the pullback means for the broader water sector? Anything? I don't, you know, admittedly, it concerns me a little bit, I think, but we've seen some successful market entrants come in. I mean, we've talked a fair amount about central states. Uh, we've seen uh, NW Natural out of the Pacific Northwest. They've been really active. So there is more activity. I mean, like, you know, I think in 2021, we saw 208 or so uh, utility acquisitions in the U.S. The numbers come down to to about, you know, the five-year average. Um, it looks like for 2022 at about 150 or so. Um, I don't think it's a good signal, but at the same time, I think everybody does see water as a, you know, risk when it comes to water quality, availability. Um, but like you said, you got to be in it for the long haul. And that's the advantage that the established players have. They've been at it for a long time. And so they they know it, they do it. Um, and they know the sort of the rules of the road as well as the expectations. Yep. Good deal. Well, Reese, as always, great information. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on, especially after you're just getting back from spring break. So hope you're rested up and ready to go. Can't say rested, but I'm ready to go <laughs> regardless. So uh, we'll talk soon. Yep. We'll see you, Reese. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. And so now it's time for the main event, the interview with Anthony Curry. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Anthony, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. How are things down under today? It's great, David. Thank you so much for having me back. It's been what I'm gonna I'm gonna guess four years, although it might feel like a hundred given what we've all been through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it has been a while, and uh, I should have asked you how the future is because you're uh, you're a day ahead of me right now. Yeah, absolutely. The future's looking great. I mean, maybe a slightly different to the future you're going to have tomorrow, but it's we're heading up for 85 degrees here today in Melbourne, uh, which, you know, I don't want to get you guys jealous up there, but you know, it's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, so I've kind of hinted at uh, what's changed in your life, but why don't you, why don't you let us know what, how's, how things are different for you since the last time you were on? Yeah, sure, sir. Um, unsurprisingly, this is a COVID move. Uh, my wife, um, who is Australian but became an American citizen in uh, in January 2020 when we were still in New York where I'd lived for 20 odd years at that point um you know we decided she's got she became a citizen and then said I've got this so that just in case we leave and the kids want to come back we can come back and follow them uh, and I said I'm not sure the kids want us to follow them if they ever move back to the states but you know uh, but then you know I didn't think we'd leave then covid hit and there we were in our small two bedroom apartment with two young kids uh, along with many other people, both of us trying to work full-time jobs while also being full-time parents and full-time teachers. And we just thought, this is looking unsustainable for us. 
Uh, and we thought about moving back back to Australia with uh, my wife's family have mostly come back to Australia as well over the years. So um, we decided to move to Melbourne, which in sort of mid-2020 seemed like a really good idea. And then uh, it got whacked with a couple of big lockdowns. But we did have, well, after we moved here, we got about six or seven months of almost complete freedom within Australia, uh, which I think saved our sanity a bit. So we got lucky and then straight into another lockdown. But, you know, now we're, as with most of the rest of the world, we're cracking on with it. So, you know, and, and, and it's good. We just bought a house. We just moved in and, uh, you know, we're here for a while. All right. That's awesome. Great to hear. Uh, so what what are you working on these days? What uh, What's kind of caught your attention in the water space yeah, well, I mean, there's there's a fair bit. I, I wish I could do more. In fact, I am, and I can go into this a bit later, I'm trying to set up a newsletter about water uh, so I can force myself to write more rather than getting distracted by, you know, <laughs> gold mining mergers and other things that I do at my day job. Um, but, I mean, what we're going to talk about today, I think, is one of the biggest things, which is um, green hydrogen. Uh, but, you know, other things I've been looking at is, um, and obviously we've got the, the big UN meetings in March, uh, the first time in almost 50 years there's been a, a, a full-scale UN meeting about water, almost a sort of a, a COP-like meeting on water. So I'm actually going to be back in New York City for that. Uh, so I'm preparing for that. got a few people I'm talking to, hopefully do a couple of events. Uh, and sort of push on, on the finance side, try and push the agenda a bit more to get uh, financiers more involved. And that's one of the things I read about recently was, you know, you look at what the banks are doing in, in climate finance and how they're not funding certain fossil fuel and other companies, and don't get me wrong, I don't think they're doing enough, um, but they have a very clear agenda there and they have a lot of money they're devoting to it or say they're devoting to it. Um, and water gets, uh, pardon the pun, a trickle. And I think this is the year where banks really should be pushing to be, and be pushed to do a lot more. So that's another focus as well. I mean, basically a, f- a fair degree of advocacy from my position as a, a writer of financial journalistic opinion as opposed to pure news. <laughs> well, that's good. So, so connect the dots for me. I think uh, some of our listeners are very astute to it, but if I, I, I want to, you know, be a kin- kindergartner here when I'm mm. asking you the question, what's the line between water and green hydrogen? Oh, well, it's, 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 the, I think it's the simplest thing ever. And I think it goes back to water's role in virtually everything. Water is being forgotten about when people who want to be green hydrogen producers talk about green hydrogen. So um, there are three main ingredients for green hydrogen. Number one, you need a lot of renewable energy. Without renewable energy, it's not green. Number two, you need a really good electrolyzer so that you can create the green hydrogen. Uh, And the third thing you need to put into those two things or to be used for those two things is water. Without green, without water, fresh water, pure fresh water at the moment, there are plans for seawater and other things, without pure fresh water, you cannot create hydrogen. Uh, you cannot create green hydrogen. So uh, that I, I hadn't even thought about this. I was, you know, we've been looking at green hydrogen on and off for four years. And that's, when I moved here, was it late 2020? I had to take four months off because I couldn't, I had to wait for my work visa to come through. By the time I started working again, green hydrogen had gone from this this is interesting. This could go somewhere. It'll be really expensive. Oh, there's not. There's a lot we've got to fix with it. Can we transport it properly? Can we get enough renewable energy? Is it safe? Is can we do it cheaply enough? Suddenly, within a few months, it almost become this uh, this answer to everything or answer to, to many things uh, in in climate change. And I thought, okay, interesting. Uh, let's see where it goes. And then someone last year down here, actually, on one of the one of the water utilities, said to me. No one's talking to us about, about green hydrogen. So all these people are coming up with all these plans globally. 
And here in Australia, they said, and there's, there's one very big player down here who wants to do a lot of green hydrogen, and that's um, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, who's the executive chairman of Fortescue, an iron ore company. Um, he said that no one's, no one's contacting us, the water utilities, who have the expertise in water, about water. So I started looking into it. And what did you find? Uh, well, firstly, I found out, unfortunately, that, that this person was absolutely right. Um, when you look through, and I've looked through a lot of statements, a lot of um, white papers and everything from so many different green hydrogen producers or wannabe green hydrogen producers, and almost none of them mention water beyond two things. One, they do give a nod to it as it being a key ingredient, but they don't really go into, into what they're doing with it and how much they'll need. And two, they talk about it as the only thing that you get from the process of burning green hydrogen. So rather than with fossil fuels, you get carbon, uh, you get uh, uh, methane and everything. They'll say with green hydrogen, the only exhaust you get is water. And isn't that great? Well, it kind of would be if that's all you had to worry about with water is you're going to suddenly be you know, uh, getting water droplets coming out of your car or your, or your industry facility. Wouldn't that be great? Um, but unfortunately, you need a lot of water at the beginning of the process, and not just to create the green hydrogen, but to make sure that the process of getting to the stage of creating the green hydrogen is done. And that's what many people aren't even focusing on, is that, as with most things, you don't just need water at the very end stage, this what's called the stoichiometric uh, 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 part of the, of the phase where you actually physically use that electrolyzer to turn water into green hydrogen. You need it for a lot of other things before you get there. Okay, so uh, people aren't looking at water enough or they're not talking to the water utilities. Uh, so how, is, how, how are the, the, the entities that are saying we're going to produce green hydrogen, how are they taking water into account, if, if at all? Well, often, often they're not. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to get hold of people, and a lot of people won't talk about it, um, or they'll defer to someone else and then not get back to you or whatever else. But you know, I've, I've looked at, at places from you know, Saudi Arabia. Look, Saudi Arabia is doing a huge amount of desalination, and that's we can go into later on. They, they can do that, right? It's, there's very little stopping a country like Saudi Arabia from doing it. Um, other countries might have more of a problem, which we can go into. Um, but uh, what I find is that you know, from, from Utah to Australia to Europe, they're really not talking about it much. When they do, there's a lot of assumptions that go into it. So one of the things I've seen down here, for example, is uh, people say, don't worry, we'll only need to use 2% of the country's water or we'll, we'll be using less water than the Australian mining industry currently does. And they don't really go into exactly what the mining industry is. Is it the coal mining industry? Is it the mining for various metals? This is a massive producer, of course, don't forget, of iron ore. Um, it's one of the top three exporters of coal, of gas. Um, and also they've got lots of lithium. Uh, they're finding cobalt, other things. So there's a lot of mining that goes on in this country. And a lot of it does go in in pretty arid areas in Western Australia. In the, the, I think I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for this comparison in theory. But the theory doesn't always tra translate to reality because you do need to have the water exactly where you want to create the green hydrogen. And one of the things about green hydrogen is if, you need to, if you're going to use renewable energy, which is what we want to use, more often than not, you're going to want to use solar. And where do you want to put your solar plants to make sure you get the most hydrogen? In really hot areas. And what do really hot areas generally lack? Water. 
Whereas, you know, coal mines, as we've seen down here, and I know you guys have been suffering from aridity for quite a while, certainly in the, in the western part of America until very recently. Um, Australia's been in La Nina for the past three years, which means it's been raining a lot, and a lot of coal mines have been getting flooded. So coal mines are in oft, often um, pretty wet areas or areas that can become wet. Where you want to do green hydrogen is going to have to be in areas where either you've got a lot of wind or a lot of solar, and solar seems to be the thing everyone's going for. So you've got to think about the water, and these people aren't. They're looking at national averages or industry averages um, and not thinking about the fact that water, as, as I know you know, David, a lot of your listeners do, water is exceptionally local. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let me ask you this. So when, when I, electricity can be moved easier than water, because, you know, as, as Trevor Hill and mm-hmm. others have said, water is heavy. And as you just alluded to, what, you know, water is a, a local issue. So are, are green hydrogen producers thinking that they will, you know, put in, for example, a high voltage direct current transmission line, and get the wa- get the electricity to the water, or do you think they are not taking that into account at all? They're they're wanting to produce because that's that's what I infer from what mm. you're indicating that they want to produce yeah, in the area. It's it's strange actually. I think this is part of the problem. They're just not thinking about it enough, right? So um, you could, I suppose, and you're not being a scientist. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be able to opine on this particularly wonderfully. But you could, I suppose do that. The problem is um, one of the things about a big area like Australia where I'm going to get these figures wrong, 75% is desert and 90% of the country is uninhabited or it's the other way around. I forget which, probably that way around. Um, you want to use a lot of space for um, the solar farms. You're going to need a huge amount of space for the solar farms. You also want to, ex- one of the things is they want to export the green hydrogen, right? So uh, they want to be by the coast, uh, which means you're kind of limited about for, for where you can put uh, your various parts of the, of the process that you're going into. So, yes, you could build cables, and there are certainly cables that are being talked about. There's even one down here uh, where um, this company called Sun Cable wants to build, and it's actually um, got, basically gone bankrupt. We don't need to go into why, but it's, it's, it's an early-stage company that is building a massive solar farm in the Northern Territory, another hot area of Australia, and wants to ship it over via cable up to Singapore, about 4,200 kilometers away. So you can certainly do it. Whether it's efficient enough is another matter. Whether it suits your purposes for export and the amount of land you're going to have for your electrolyzer is another matter as well. Um, so I think, again, these are things people just haven't talked about enough. Yeah. So and, and let's, let's go back to that because you we, we've talked a little about mining and iron ore and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned Andrew Twiggy Forrest. Mm. Uh, so why would an iron ore magnet, uh, why, why would he be getting into green hydrogen? What do you think is, is behind that? Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, if you're, there are, there are several things, right? On the number one, um, iron ore is not always going to be, um, the thing everyone wants to buy. Uh, one of the biggest markets, China, obviously there have been problems with China between China and Australia over the past few years. Iron ore was one of the few products that wasn't banned for imports by China. They stopped coal, rock lobster, melon, wine, other things. Um, iron ore they kept. Uh, so it's been really important. Um, that will diminish over time. But also there are 
um, even if you think, okay, even if China remains big for a long time, or even if you find other markets, um, the way of producing iron ore is pretty um, carbon intensive, right? Mostly it's done using coking coal or metallurgical coal, as it's called, which is, you know, it's coal. Um, so it produces a lot of methane, a lot of carbon dioxide, both in its mining and in its usage. Um, so, you know, if you want to make steel out of that iron ore and you're Twiggy Forest, and he doesn't do that, he just does the shipping, but he's thinking ahead. And he is a bit of environmentalist. He's also got involved in other projects, right? He's been, been trying to sort of stop a, a takeover of a salmon farm, saying it's too environmentally unfriendly. He failed, but he tried. Um, so I don't for a moment dismiss the fact that he wants to make sure that the world becomes a better place environmentally. Um, but also there's, there's a money-making exercise here that you could have in the long term. If you could decarbonize steel making process, you could make more um, of the uh, pig iron and even some of the steel in Australia and therefore recoup even more money or, or get even more money from the steel making process. Um, and one way to do that would be green hydrogen, right? So there's very much a self-interest here, I think, uh, on his part. It's not the only thing, though. He will also be able to say that we can export it. In Australia, as I said, it's a massive exporter of fossil fuel uh, and also of minerals and other ores. And the idea of having another new industry to export, I think, appeals to Australians a lot, and Twiggy Forest among them. So if you could turn green hydrogen into a massive export industry, wouldn't that be fantastic? And that's what he's trying to do. He's been going around the world. He's, he's trying to uh, resurrect a decades-old plan to put hydropower on the Congo River. Uh, he's... Um, been uh, into Europe, America, Latin America. During lockdowns here, when the country was basically closed, he got special dispensation to fly around the world to try and uh, get people to talk about green hydrogen. So he's, there's a lot of reasons he's doing it, but it's, it's, it's not just altruistic. He sees a lot of money in this if he gets it right. Right, right. So it seems like he might you know, he might get that water is, uh, plays a fundamental role in green hydrogen how far away are we from other players in the industry realizing that that water is the key to green hydrogen? I, I don't. Th I don't think we are. Again, I go back to um, what I was saying about how people just focus on the small amount they'll need, uh, and or what they think is a small amount they'll need, and they'll put it in national or um, industry contexts rather than local contexts. And they're ignoring a lot of issues that revolve around community engagement, lots of other things. One of the, one of the ideas that is often thrown out if you challenge these people and say, oh, hang on, you're going to need a lot of water. What if those mines that already exist in Western Australia for iron ore or lithium or whatever are already, have already taken most of the water? And actually, I, I asked the uh, Western Australian Water Authority about this. And they said, well, green hydrogen will just be, they'll just use desalination. And desalination is the word you hear all the time. And there's a reason for that, right? If you can do it on the coast, if you want to export it, um, you're going to need to use desalination uh, if you can't find water elsewhere. But desalination takes, in most countries, takes forever to approve. Um, amusingly, people look at the costs of green hydrogen production and say that's really expensive, but desalination is a lot cheaper uh, than what we'd spend on green hydrogen. So it's about the only time in the world I've ever heard desalination being talked of as a cheap input <laughs> because it's not a cheap input anywhere else but they're, they're looking at it in terms of uh well look how much energy we're going to need for the green hydrogen desalination is nothing but of course you need to make sure that's done in a green way as well and that's only really just beginning i'm sure you've spoken to people who know more about this far more than i do but there are plants down here desal plants that talk about being green but really what they're doing is buying offsets 
um, which, you know, let's not get into that debate. But if you're going to do green hydrogen, everything has to be green. If you're buying offsets to get it done, you're not green, right? So, um, so your, de- your desalination has to be green. You have to make sure that you've got all the local permits. You've got to make sure you're not destroying the environment. And there are various schools of thought on whether um, uh, the brine that goes back into the sea is a problem or whether you could even keep it on land and, and use it as another resource. All these things are possible or, or a problem, depending on how you look at it. But, you know, the lead time for getting a desal plant up and running in this country is about a decade. Uh, so you're not looking at anything for green hydrogen anytime soon. Uh, and even then, you've got, to, uh, you've got to combat other people who will want to have desal plants purely for water use, for um, municipal use. Right? So it's, and, and you won't be able to suddenly just give the water to them if you've got the plant on the coast in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so desal is probably an option uh, for getting the water, but it's not as cheap as people think, and it's certainly not easy and takes a hell of a long time to sort out. Yeah. I mean, you've kind of touched on it a little bit because, you know, when, when, when I hear desal, I think uh, not only, you know, intense energy usage, brine stream, things like that, social mm. license is uh, yep. one of the things that, that comes up. And so is that going to be an issue for green hydrogen, getting that social license if, if desal is used or other? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so. And it, it will vary depending on where you are. I mean, there are a lot of sites around here where you could put green hydrogen down in Australia where, I can envisage, and this, I got this from someone else, and I've not looked into it, so I'm sure you can find places where it won't be true, but where I can envisage uh, there being sort of high environmental issues uh, to be surpassed, to be able to put in anything, green, whether it's a, um, a desal plant or anything else on the coast. Right? You've got to be very careful of uh, the coastline, of um, uh, environmental issues, what if there's a, a nature preserve, whatever else. So yeah, there, there, I'm sure there are ways around this, and there are, there are desalination experts who are working on this, I'm sure. Um, but it's not an easy fix. And, and then if you, if you think, okay, community involvement, if you need to go closer to where people live, and I think that's going to be one of the issues um, for places that are not Australia. So, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about Utah, thinking about Europe, I mean, Europe especially, Utah not so much, but Utah, uh, Europe is densely populated. Yes, you can find places where you can do renewable, where you can do renewable energy, um, but you need a lot. So are you taking that away from the local communities or local industries? And the, there may be a lot of water uh, theoretically in some of these places, but most of it will already have been spoken for. So then you're going to get into a battle over with municipalities, industry, farmers, over who has rights to that water. And then if you think if you're in an area where, which is prone to aridity, uh, whether um, increasingly so as in parts of Europe or, of course, down in Australia, pretty much all the time when we're not in the Nina, there's a, there's a chance of, of aridification. Who wins that battle for water when it's more scarce? So you could see, I can see a situation where you could set up a green hydrogen project, you get all the approvals, um, you've promised that desalination um, can be used for the local community as well. Almost a bit like, you know, how a lot of Bitcoin miners, certainly in America, are saying, don't worry, you know, we're using renewable energy or even other energy, but if there's a problem with the grid, if there's a blackout or if there's a, you know, if you need more for air conditioning or for heating in the winter, we'll give you some of that. Well, if you do that, that means you've got to stop your job, right, as a Bitcoin miner. Same thing with green hydrogen. If you've promised, as some of them are talking about doing, promised to give the community, your farmers, the water, well, what really happens in a, in, 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 in ridification? Do you, are you really going to give it up? Uh, is that really is that going to be sustainable for your business plan? Th- these are questions that haven't even been considered by a lot of people yet. Yeah, and and 
where does efficiency and water conservation come in to, to play in this equation? Well, that, that, that could be an interesting one, actually. So, I mean, we, we I can go into a minute about how much water is needed, because I think that's another thing people are completely ignoring. I know I touched on it earlier, but efficiency is quite an interesting one. So, and this is why I, I see a few water utilities thinking this through. And it's not just down here. I know Yarra Valley Water, which is one of the Melbourne um, uh, water authorities, is looking at this. And several others in the region are as well. For some reason, Victorian, Victoria is the state that Melbourne is the capital of. For some reason, Victorian water authorities are all over this. Um, but um, I know some, uh, uh, there's an Irish um, water authority was talking about this as well. Um, this is where you get into sort of a really good circular economy argument. So if you have water that goes into, that you get into your um, water treatment plant, um, you can then treat that because you're treating it anyway, right? You need the water that goes into the electrolyzer needs to be really pure. Um, so you treat that anyway. It doesn't take a huge amount more necessarily to get it up to um, the grade needed for electrolyzing. Um, the process of um, producing the of the hydrogen throws off two things, right? It, so you use the water and it throws off hydrogen and oxygen. That oxygen can be used to help sort out uh, the waste treatment plant issues and some of and some of their um, emissions themselves. So it becomes a way of of um, sewage plants and water authorities are reducing their, their carbon output, which is great. Also, if you're in the right place and the, the Yarra Valley Water Authority's plant is right on what's called the Hume Highway, which is the main highway between um, Melbourne and Sydney. If you were to think, and I'm, I'm a skeptic on this one, but I'm going to say this because I think it's, it's, it's a nice idea. If you think that we're going to get hydrogen-driven vehicle, hydrogen-powered vehicles, especially trucks, if you're on one of the main arterial routes of a country or a state, what a great place to have a hydrogen plant, right? So, and at the same time, you're using water that may have got, gone off into the sea already, although Yarra and others are reusing water and sending it off to industry and even to, uh, for municipal uses in certain cases. Um, so again, I think that there will be a fight there at some point in the future as well. But for now, if you could use recycled water, wouldn't that be great? But again, it still comes up with the, yes, that's great, but what, if, what, if, uh, what about in a... A, a, a situation of aridity in the future, um, farmers are suddenly lacking in water. Who wins on that one? Right? Do you feed people or do you produce hydrogen for power to, for domestic or export purposes? Tricky one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what's your take on um, where green hydrogen is ripe? And let, me, and let me preface this by saying that recent legislation in the States has provided that uh, there are going to be hydrogen hubs and some of those hydrogen hubs would be placed in what are typically considered arid areas. Mm. Um, and so can green, my, my, my question to you is can green hydrogen work anywhere or what's the right mix of, of water, you know, clean energy to make green hydrogen mm. work? What, what's your thought on that? I mean, I, I think doing it in arid areas, if, if you can transport the energy and you can do it efficiently and it works, fine. I think you've still got to work out where the water comes from because you, you, wherever you go, you're going to have a water issue. Right? So if you're doing it in, in arid areas, there's, there's simply a lack of enough water or it's hard to get or you're digging down deep into artesian wells or whatever it is. Or you come up with desalination, which adds a whole other level of, of, of issues. Um, if you can transport it, fine, but you're going to be transporting it to areas maybe where um, 
there's water, but like I said earlier, there's water, but it's already spoken for. Um, and then you still got to transport the hydrogen anyway. So look, I, I, all, all these are questions for um, industrialists and policymakers, as well as environmentalists and others, don't get me wrong, and investors, um, to, to, to make sure they understand and that they're looking at all the various problems and permutations of those problems they've got to get through. Um, the one thing that worries me about what a lot of the green hydrogen people say when they talk about water, when they actually get into it, if you can actually get them talking about it, is they also are only, as I said earlier, focusing on that stoichiometric measure of how much water you need for the process. And that is like nine litres of water for every kilogram of hydrogen. It's a pretty static number. And that's what's behind a lot of these, you know, it's only 2% of the, of the country's water in Australia and other things. Um, the problem is you've got to keep that electrolyzer cool unless you can, you can have electrolyzers that don't need water, but they don't work very well in arid areas. Um, so they only work in areas where there's lots of water. Um, so, or where it's not as hot. So, I mean, I, I spoke to a number of people about this and there, no one knows at the moment, or no one has a clear idea of exactly how much water will be needed for whatever the process is. Um, your friends, um, who I know you have on a lot of Bluefield research, um, they've got a number of about 25 uh, litres. Um, I spoke to people down here, some engineers down here, who put it as high as 90. So that's 10 times as much. And then that's if you're using fresh water. If you go up into using desalination, it can go up into 100, 200, 300, even up to f- almost 500. Although I think, you know, that's at the top end of the scale. I don't think you'd have many things that would, re- many areas where you'd require that much from what I can tell, but they gave that as an outlier. So you, you'd need to look at how are these people putting green hydrogen projects into arid areas, thinking about how much water they think they need. Because if they're only looking at that actual end process, a stoichiometric process. And I'm saying stoichiometric a lot because it took me a long time to work out how to say it properly. Um, so I'm going to show <laughs> off now. Yeah, yeah. And, it makes me, and it makes me sound smart. Um, but if you're thinking it's just nine liters of water per kilogram of hydrogen, you're way off base, way off base. And that's going to affect where you can, where you can put your plants. It's going to affect how much it's going to cost, how much more desal you're going to need, uh, and how much energy you're going to use. So, and that, that's before, I mean, I, I've, I've been a skeptic about green hydrogen. I hope I'm proved wrong because I think, you know, if it works, I mean, it's the most abundant um, molecule on earth, so they tell me. Um, but it's also, it's an exceptionally inefficient at the moment, an inefficient way of creating electricity. As, as I spoke to a green hydrogen expert um, early last year um, who, uh, Saul Griffith, he's written a couple of books. Well, he used to advise, um, I think he still actually has a role advising the Biden White House. He's an Australian though, he's, he's moved back down here as well. And he said, if you, if you think about powering an electric vehicle, um, you'll get maybe 80% efficiency if you power it directly from, the, uh, from your um, solar-powered battery or whatever. Okay? If you plug, plug your electric vehicle into solar power, you'll get 80% efficiency. So if you're looking at green hydrogen, you're going to get at least, at best, a third of the efficiency of that renewable energy because you've got to power the electrolyzer, you've got to ship it, you've got to convert it. Um, to ship it. And then when it gets to the other end, you've got to convert it back and then you've got to pump it. And then by the time you've used it, you've at best um, got one third of the energy you've used to create it, which strikes me as recreating the very same problem we've got with fossil fuels. Forget about the emissions for a second. Fossil fuels are exceptionally inefficient, right? All that heat they generate. So why would we do that at the moment? Electrolyzers will get more efficient, I'm sure. But at the moment, the combination of um, not enough water or not enough thinking about water 
uh, and the um, inability to work out how to make this, well, not inability to work it out, but the fact that hydrogen at the moment is still a very inefficient process, uh, or creating it is a very inefficient process. Plus, you've got to work out how to ship it without it leaking because it's a really bad uh, gas to leak into the environment. Um, there are a lot of things that need to be fixed. But if we don't think about water first, then we're going to get all the way to thinking about transportation and other things and then think, ah, oh, damn it, we forgot to think about our water supply. And we spent so much money getting all the other things right because we didn't think about water. And you see that all the time, right? I mean, last what happened last year? Elon Musk, uh, everyone's favorite individual, uh, laughing off um, uh, questions at his Berlin plant about lack of water. And he said that, why would I worry about that? It rain, look, it's rain. It rains here all the time. Well, the area around Berlin is, yes, it, it's, it's notorious for, for having been a swamp in the past, you know, hundreds of years ago, but it suffers from water insecurity. And he just laughed it off. And then a majority of independent shareholders voted in favor of a good water plan uh, at the shareholders meeting uh, late last year. Um, we see it all the time in energy, right? The amount of times that water is simply ignored. And then you think, oh, we forgot about that. We forgot we would get flooded. We forgot we needed water, but we're now in an area that's too arid. Um, people should not be making the same mistake with green hydrogen. It's going to cost a ton of money, and that is a lot of money you don't want to waste. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like you've uh, just given us your leave-behind message, but I will re-ask the question just in case you really want to, uh, to hammer the point home. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would make uh, two points. I mean, and it's all about transparency, basically. Number one... Um, all these green hydrogen proponents really need to be a lot more transparent about what they think their water use will be and be open to discussion about it. There actually is one down here. Um, the Australian Green, Hy- green Hydrogen Association has started looking into it and has actually done a report with Arup, which they haven't published yet, but which actually has some of the higher numbers that, um, that weren't out there before uh, within the industry. So it's beginning. But it's not just the industry. It's the fanciers as well who've got to get into it. A lot of investors are talking about it. Um, a lot of investors interested, banks, whatever, they should be the ones pushing for this as well. If the green hydrogen uh, wannabe producers aren't talking about it, it's got to come down to the investors as well. Otherwise, um, they're going to be landed with a huge bill with very little to show for it. Absolutely. You know, Anthony, I always learn a lot when I speak with you. I really appreciate you coming on, especially uh, given the time difference that we're uh, experiencing now. But thanks so much for coming on. You've been fantastic. For those who want to learn more about you, and your work, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, there's a couple of places. So as I said, I, I, I do want to set up a, uh, a newsletter on water and finance issues. Um, I'm just getting into it. I've got a address I'll give out. It's the liquid asset, ho, 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 the liquid asset dot beehive, which is B-W-H-I-V.com. Um, but also my day job is uh, uh, as a columnist at Breaking Views, which is the financial commentary unit of Reuters, where I write about many other things, not just water. Uh, and that is simply www.breakingviews.com. Excellent. Well, sign me up for the newsletter. Uh, and until next time, Anthony, which I hope is not as long as the four-year hiatus we had this time, I hope all is well. Thanks, David. It's been great to be on the show again. Absolutely. Thanks, Anthony. We'll talk to you soon. Speak soon. Uh-huh. As a lawyer whose practice lies in both the water and energy spaces, I find Anthony's insights really fascinating. Sometimes I feel like the water sector has way too many silos, but then I speak with smart people like Anthony and realize that a lot of other sectors like energy have a lot of silos too. 
And so it's just interesting how we need to break those down and understand and see the bigger picture. We can't miss the forest for the trees uh, when we're talking about these things because it's all interrelated. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. That's our landing page on the Bluefield Research website. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield gives us a home on the web. So if you still use Twitter, you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. You can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page I mentioned earlier as well. Well, thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, and Black & Veatch. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.